0: Hey friends, today we're going to kick off a new sermon series. For the next 10 weeks, we're going to study Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and today we're going to read the first two verses of the book, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In in terms of population in the Roman Empire, uh, you can think of Ephesus like Chicago. Chicago is the third most populous city in the United States, and that's uh, where Ephesus fit in the Roman Empire. It was big, historic, you know, probably over a thousand years old at the time of writing and really densely populated. So 250,000 people or so lived in the ancient city of Ephesus. So as population goes, think of it like Chicago. But in terms of symbolic value, when you think Ephesus, I want you to think New York City. Uh, many of you will know what it's like to fly into one of the New York area airports and you see Manhattan and you know what it's like for your vision to just be flooded with these images of human creativity and power. Skyscraper after skyscraper juts into the sky and the Statue of Liberty waves you welcome. Welcome. When you get into the city, onto the island of Manhattan um, and walk through it on the ground level, you're just overwhelmed by the density and the diversity of the people. There's so many languages and ethnicities and stations of life. And you're like, man, I know there are so many stories represented in the people that I'm seeing. And as you peruse the city, you come across these icons of American power and prosperity and culture. There's the New York Stock Exchange, there's Times Square, the theaters lined up and down Broadway. You can see the United Nations building, museums, galleries, the Federal Reserve. You can walk through Central Park. And as as you traverse through the city, New York just overwhelms your senses with its sights and sounds and smells and tastes. The soaring architecture and the glut of people makes you feel small and insignificant, and just being in the city humbles you. A lot of people come to New York thinking that they're going to come and make a name for themselves, so they were a hit in their school play or their community theater, or back home they would sell out the coffee shops and the bars sharing their original music. And it's as if the city is not only not interested in what you have to offer, it's like the city is actively working against their quest for success. It's like you think you're going to, you know, find success in the city. Let's see if you can be successful finding an apartment you can afford for more than a couple of months. Let's see if you can be successful in finding a parking space for your car. Uh, Friends of mine who've been in the city for the long haul say a similar thing happens with ambitious church planters who come to the city full of zeal and energy and they're casting a vision to see the city transformed for Christ. And the difficulty of managing the logistics of life in the city squashes their efforts and sends them packing with their tail between their legs. A really common grief among long haul New Yorkers is that they will develop an entire friend group and that whole lineup will over the course of years disappear and folks will have to start over again making new friends because their original buddies got crushed by the difficulty of living in the heart of the American empire. There's a legend that the city of Ephesus was originally founded by this group of Amazonian warrior women who wanted to create a temple uh, housed in a city dedicated to the worship of the goddess Artemis Ephesia. The temple, after it was built, became one of the seven wonders of the world, many times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. And the temple and the idol production that, that surrounded the temple was big business for Ephesus. There was another imperial temple that was also dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Caesar. Ephesus was the Roman, uh, the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was the economic capital and hub for the Roman Empire. It boasted of a 25,000 seat uh, theater. It had these grand public baths and gymnasiums, a slew of monuments and fountains, sophisticated architecture, columns and archways, all of them boasting of the might of Rome and the glory of Ephesus. As a port city, now in in western Turkey right there on the coast, there was a never-ending stream of goods and people and ideas going in and out of the city. It was a happening place. When you think of Ephesus, think this is the home to the coastal elite. It was wealthy, populous, idolatrous, pagan, obsessed with magic and witchcraft, and... It was home to a small band of Jesus followers who were just trying to survive as an ethnically and socioeconomically mixed minority in a city that didn't want them to make it. To this group of people in this city, Paul the Apostle composed a letter that we now know as the book of Ephesians. In the glory days of the people of Israel in generations past, the the community of faith had a city of their own, a temple of their own and people would flock to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice and to worship and to celebrate their customs. But then, as you all remember the story, the exile happened. The temple was destroyed, the city was burned, and many of the inhabitants were dragged and forced into exile in Babylon, and there acculturated into a Babylonian way of life. The city of Babylon, from a biblical perspective, comes to represent a shift away from being in majority culture, Where you're liked and powerful and influential to being a ridiculed minority, thought to be an artifact of an antiquated age, a has-been, an object of scorn, morally and socially regressive and out of touch with modern sensibilities. And though the literal exile from Babylon ended, with an exception of a brief period of of years of liberation under the Maccabees, the community of the faith, faith was henceforth under the hand of foreign oppressors. And God's people had to get used to being outsiders, to being fringe influencers, to being out of step with pop culture and values. They had to get comfortable and used to their way of life not being supported by society at large. For the community of faith, there were no more free passes. They were thought to be at best irrelevant and at worst dangerous. And this was especially true of those who had become followers of Jesus and ultimately spread through the empire, winding up in cities like Ephesus, cities that felt a lot like Babylon 2.0. David Kinnaman in his book, Faith and Exile says, the Babylon of the Bible Uh, is characterized as a culture set against the purposes of God, a human society that glories in pride, power, prestige, and pleasure. Babylon is both a place and an archetype of collective human pursuits set in opposition to God. Kinnaman in the book goes on to argue that we in the West are living in what he calls digital Babylon, a society united by the internet that is dead set on undiscipling the next generations, of wiping out evidence of kingdom values and sensibilities and commitments, and it appears to be working. In a 2011 study, 59% of young adults with Christian backgrounds were reported to have dropped out of church at one time or another. A decade later, in a 2019-2020 study, the dropout rate of 18 to 24-year-olds increased to 64%, so just over two out of three. Kinneman argued that, that today's society is especially and insidiously faith-repellent. Our screens, he said, inform and connect, but they also distract and entertain. Through screens' ubiquitous presence, Babylon's pride, power, prestige, and pleasure are colonizing our hearts and minds. The the tidal wave of digital Babylon is destroying much that's familiar and dear, especially to previous generations, and leaving many people discouraged, doubtful, and afraid for the future. And some people are asking, you know, how is the way of Jesus How is the church going to survive a culture so hostile to the gospel? And this was a question that that many Ephesian Christians may have been asking themselves. The number of Ephesian Christians from as best we can gather uh, appeared to be pretty small in a city so powerful and populous. And by, by reading the text, we get the sense that they were having a difficult time keeping things together. They were primarily a Gentile congregation, but they also had Jews among their number. In the previous generation of leadership, like names in the Hall of Fame of Faith that you'd read in the book of Acts, key names like Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy and Paul may have been aging out. In fact, the letter may have been prompted by Paul's desire to rearticulate the gospel and a vision for what it means to belong to, to Christ's church, to a new generation, one way of telling the story of the church in Ephesus was that they were on their last leg or being held together with duct tape and the waning strength of Paul's personality. In all likelihood, the might of Ephesian idolatry and Babylon-esque undiscipling efforts would ultimately erase even the memory of a community of Christ followers in Ephesus. There wasn't really that much hope. This could be the end of the line for them, so grieve it and let it go. That's one way of telling the story of the church in Ephesus. But in the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at another way of telling the story, telling the story through the lens of the kingdom of God, one that stands in faithful defiance, of kingdom alliance, of spirit reliance of a community caught up in the fire and the life of the recreative spirit of God, patiently and ardently and gloriously building Christ's church to the delight of the Father. From the outside, it may have looked like this ragtag group of Ephesian Christians were on the verge of collapse, but Paul says, no, you're just early adopters for a movement that is going to change the world. You're not a lost cause in Babylon 2.0. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You're caught up in the greatest story ever told, a story whose author and finisher has already defied and defeated death. You're not powerless and victimized. No, you are reigning with Christ and seated beside him now in the heavenly realms. You're clothed in the armor of God and equipped to stand victoriously in the face of your enemy. In chapter one of this letter, Paul is going to remind the Ephesians of the victory and the wisdom of God the Father in unveiling his plan for the world. In chapter two of this letter, he'll reiterate for them what was accomplished in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Son. In chapter 3, he's going to demonstrate how the Holy Spirit is actively enacting the victory of Jesus and the will of God in the world. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he'll reiterate, and here's what all of that means for the church, for you. He begins this letter, Paul. Not some hokey, backward, itinerant preacher. No, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle just means a sent one. I'm Paul, sent by Jesus, doing Christ's work by the will and the wisdom of God. Writing to, not some hopeless case, but he says to God's holy and chosen people who live in Ephesus. He calls them not the struggling, but the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he blesses them with these words. Grace and peace to you, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer for the, us this fall as a church, as on Sunday mornings we we go through the Book of Ephesians together, and during the week, as many of you uh, go through the book "Beautiful Resistance" in your apprentice groups, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will help us to rediscover who we are in Christ how we've been equipped with Christ, equipped in Christ to be resilient and faithful in an anxious and idolatrous world, in digital Babylon, that we'll rediscover the beauty and the power of the gospel, the grace that's been poured out for us in Jesus Christ, and that all of this will help us to renew our commitment to living out God's purposes in the world through the church. I can't be more optimistic and hopeful about what God does in and through us as we have these conversations. Uh, the Atacama Desert in Chile Chile, is often referred to as one of the driest places in the world. In fact, the climate in the Atacama Desert is so dry that many scientists use it as a way to gain insight about what life and living conditions might be like on the planet Mars. If you see pictures, and you should Google pictures of the Atacama Desert, you think, how on earth could anything survive here? This is an an environment that is hostile to new life. Well, a really unusual thing happened. In mid-August, surprise rainstorms popped up all over the region, causing thousands of flowers representing 200 or more variety to spring up and blanket the desert as far as the eye can see. You see, this land that appeared on the surface to be so hostile to new life and growth was always pregnant with the possibility of beauty and new life. But it needed an outpouring from from above to unveil what was always there. In this fall, we are asking together, we're asking the Spirit of God to display in us the life of God planted through faith in Jesus Christ. To unveil in our community, in our city, in our families, in our lives that what, what we're pregnant with possibility. To unveil the beauty given us through faith in Jesus Christ, the seal placed on us by the Holy Spirit. We're asking God to cause blooms to burst out in the desert and to cause God to do what we think is impossible in our time, to reveal a land of beauty where there was ugliness to bring redemption where there's so much brokenness, to see breakthrough where we've always been disappointed. I would just ask you as we go through this fall where things are anxious, where people are stressed out, as we're going into a new uh, presidential election, that you join me in asking God to pour out His Spirit on the church that in fresh ways we might show off His beauty and power to the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are asking you to make your word come alive to us as a church this fall. That you'd help it to be not just words on a page, but you'd use it to cut us open and expose not only our sin, but even more so the beauty of what you've given us in the Holy Spirit. Every blessing, spiritual blessing in Christ that's been given to us through faith in Jesus. I pray that you would encourage those who are downtrodden, that you'd heal the sick, that you'd forgive the sinner, that you'd put in just the tired, a fresh sense of energy and resolve to faithfully follow you. Help us to grow in resilience. Help us to grow in faith and in hope. And we're counting on you to do what we can't do. Pray, Lord Jesus, in Tulsa and in our country that you'd cause flowers to bloom in the desert. To the glory of God the Father, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless your friends. We'll see you around.